as the ministers of music make their way out and find seats with you, the many ministers of Yates Baptist Church. I'm grateful for that song selection today. I want simply to highlight that image of placing ourselves in the hands of the potter and drawing on that very familiar hymn text that is a hymn to the Holy Spirit. In, in holding them together, we have an image of the life that we proclaim as the people of God, a life granted graciously by the risen Lord Jesus. But you have to track all the way back, I think, to hear what it is we need to hear today to Genesis chapter 2. While George and Allison uh, were holding many of you enthralled with their many stories and with their passion for the ministry that they're undertaking with Hagar, uh, there is another conversation afoot during Sunday school as well. Uh, Brian Smith is uh, convening a series of conversations about reading Genesis and the ways we've been taught to read Genesis and in some ways sort of liberating ourselves from the narrow focus uh, that we've often been given and to hear everything the scriptures have to say. So without a whole lot of context, I simply want to remind you in Genesis chapter 2 of the language that's used to describe the creation of humankind. And this very solitary image of God, presumably on God's knees, so to speak, hands in the dirt, forming a little clay figurine and a dom, a man. And it says this in, in verse 7, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. That's where we are going to anchor ourselves today. That life that is offered. A life that, in the words of scripture, is more than life. We hear again in John's gospel, and this will be our reading for today. Chapter 20, the risen Jesus offering a life breath to his disciples and a commission. So here, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. We all want more of that, don't we? After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. May God bless the reading and the hearing of the word today. 
Well, for me, when all else fails, I go back to the book that made such an impact on me in my childhood. And at least once a year, I turn back to it and I read it again. And it's C.S. Lewis's Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's such an important story that met me at a key time in my young life. And I had eyes to see and ears to hear how Lewis's captivity to the gospel led him to tell a children's story that in many ways disclosed the deep truth and affection for the good news of Jesus. It's hard to tell where the climax of the story actually is. Is it when Aslan, the great lion, gives himself as a sacrifice, as an exchange for the traitor Edmund, and as he's led by the white witch and her minions into the woods, and they're sacrificed on the great stone table, is that the high point of the story? Or is it a little later when the little sisters who discover his dead body fall asleep by him crying and weeping only to discover that the great stone table is cracked and that lion lives again and with a mighty roar announces, I'm back. Or is it a little later as that lion makes his way through the many stone figurines those who have borne the curse of that white witch who has brought winter and never Christmas to the kingdom of Narnia, and one by one goes to those stone figurines, paralyzed by the curse that she has brought, he breathes on them. Hear how Lewis tells that part of the story. I expect you've seen someone put a lighted match to a bit of newspaper which is propped up in a grate against an unlit fire. And for a second, nothing seems to have happened. And then you notice a tiny streak of flame creeping along the edge of the newspaper. It was like that now. For a second, after Aslan had breathed on them, the stone lion looked just the same. Then a tiny streak of gold began to run along his white marble back, and then it spread. Then the color seemed to lick all over him as the flame licks over a bit of paper. Then, while his hindquarters were still obviously stoned, the lion shook his mane with all the heavy stony folds rippled into living hair. Then he opened a great red mouth, warm and living, and gave a prodigious yawn. And now his hind legs had come to life. He lifted them and scratched himself. Then, having caught sight of Aslan, he went bounding after him and frisking around him, whimpering with delight and jumping up to lick his face. I think in many ways... The proclamation of the risen Jesus in our midst, not just as a historical moment, but as an ongoing reality for us as the church is the foundation on which we can hear the story and say with scripture, behold, I make all things new. It's hard to talk about the Holy Spirit in church. And sometimes uh, when we're honest, we realize we don't spend a lot of time anchoring our reflection and our devotion. I'll never forget when I was in seminary, we always began our classes with prayer 
and one uh, older Dutch man named Hans, who didn't speak very much, but every once in a while would speak up. And one of my classes was invited to pray. And he began this way. He said, Holy Spirit, very seldom do we ever pray to you. And I thought to myself, you know, in my upbringing, that's actually true. I was never brought up and formed to be one who looked to the Holy Spirit, as the old creed says, as the Lord, as the giver of life, as part of the great fellowship of the triune God. In some ways, the Holy Spirit is something like a servant, a butler, kind of taking care of the necessary things that God the Father and God the Son seem to want to have done. Maybe Jesus has a competitive advantage because he had a body. He had relationships. He has a story. And so we have many, many ways that we can envision and see Jesus, sing about him, talk about him. Maybe God the Father has something of a competitive advantage too, which while we can't see God the Father, we can see all of creation and say, this is my Father's world. But even Jesus, when he talked about the Spirit, used metaphors of this invisibility. The wind blows where it will. He said, you know it's there. You know it goes to work, but you can't see it. And in a sense, you can't touch it, not quite the same way. And so it is difficult for us, without some special attention, to focus on the great gift that the Holy Spirit brings to our lives and the ongoing presence. And so we have a story like this where Jesus breathes on his disciples. And it's as vivid and as powerful a story as we find in Acts chapter 2, the great day of Pentecost. But what comes next in this encounter with Jesus, I think, is very remarkable. The first item of business after Jesus declares peace on that anxious gathering is that forgiveness is on the agenda. Forgiveness of all the things that God, the Holy Spirit, might represent for us. Forgiveness might not have been first on our list. Jesus breathes the Spirit onto his followers and immediately he says the forgiveness of sins is at work and particularly your forgiveness of other people. And there's this very tight connection now between the new life that's brought in the resurrected Christ and this thing that we call forgiveness. And I question Jesus' judgment about giving the disciples a blank check to be the dispensers and the withholders of forgiveness. How will the disciples have any wisdom to know how to wield this spirit-driven ability to forgive or not? If they're like me, it's going to be kind of arbitrary. It's going to be a little willy-nilly. It's going to be biased and shaped by those things that I already like or don't like. Those things and those people of whom I approve and those of whom I don't approve. Maybe it's like Duck, Duck, Goose. You give somebody power to forgive and all of a sudden you can just sort of point your finger and say, forgiven, not forgiven. Forgiven, not forgiven. You're unforgiven. Definitely not you. Yes, you. 
But how can we read these startling words from Jesus? That the disciples have been granted this authority to forgive or not in ways that are so very binding. We hear them today and the kind of the sobriety with which I present it to you hopefully emphasizes this is not something that we should take lightly. And it is something that has a clear connection to the Holy Spirit's presence in our church and in our individual lives. And maybe that tells us something. Remember where this story is set in John chapter 20. The disciples are the ones who had just recently failed Jesus quite miserably. They were dishonest. They were disloyal. They were fearful. And it's so, it's a little wonder that upon hearing Jesus might be back, they locked the door. They feared the way the authorities would respond. They saw how the authorities had treated Jesus. Maybe they were convinced that it was the Jewish authorities that they should be afraid of. But they didn't appear to huddle in locked rooms the day before they were told Jesus had come back to life. It was only after the resurrection that the fear descends upon them. When Mary Magdalene came back and said, I've seen the Lord, that's when things got real. Maybe a lot of what Jesus had talked about in his life and in his ministry with them were about to get real. And in this act of grace, Jesus arrives. He speaks peace into that anxious room and upon their anxious lives. And he gives them this great gift, a share of the divine life through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And so in that setting, with all of that in the background, when we hear, if you forgive anyone their sins, it carries something of an implicit idea. Those of us who are reflective and humble enough to receive it can acknowledge it. By the way, don't forget all the sins that I forgave in you all. Don't forget all the sins that I forgave simply by virtue of showing up in your life again, returning to you and offering grace. This is at the heart of the forgiveness that Jesus brings. It's not simply for our benefit, but instead to be instructive about how we can carry ourselves differently like him in this world. But forgiveness is probably not the first thing we think of when we think of the arrival of the Holy Spirit, when we think about Pentecost. After all, this entire kind of a subgroup of, of the Christian faith that call themselves Pentecostals are not known first you know, for being overabundantly uh, forgiving in their speech. It has to do with the enthusiasm and the joy and the inspiration. And all of that is true. And all of that is derived in many ways from the way Luke in Acts tells the story. But here we see the disciples anxiously gathered in a room. Then they heard the sound like the rush of a violent wind coming in the house. That's an axe. The divided tongues, the fire, everything resting on each disciple. Chaos that's mistaken for drunkenness. As people speak and hear and understand all their strange new languages. But here in John, 
the Pentecost is something that happens as much internally as it is visibly outside in the world. It's a sign, it's a vision of God's revealed presence in your life and in my life. The forgiveness that unlocks doors, that recreates life, that sends us out to be like Jesus. The Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's presence with us is not solely about forgiveness, but it is important and it is often ignored. Because one of the most difficult things in this life that we could ever do is forgive another person. We know we should forgive. It's the right thing to do. We learned this very early on in our Christian journey. That's what a Christian does. A Christian cultivates forgiveness. It's what Jesus would do. But it's always easier to see somebody else through the lens of their behavior. And through the lens of its effect on us than it is to see them as, as Mackenzie prayed so vividly, as children of God, beloved by God. Sometimes it's even difficult to take that same view of ourselves. Would you ever encourage someone else who sought your counsel in leading the Christian life to talk about someone else the way you talk about yourself to yourself? What sort of grace, what sort of love, what sort of compassion, and what sort of forgiveness do you bring to your own life? As difficult as it is to forgive someone else, it's equally difficult, and I would argue, at least in my life, harder to forgive myself. Of course, forgiveness is not simply an excuse to justify whatever's happened in your life. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that forgiveness means that we now live in a consequence-free environment. But there is a different question, a starting point for us. The question that forgiveness brings to us is whether or not we will give someone else or we will give ourselves the opportunity to reclaim the original beauty of our createdness and our belovedness by God. The question that forgiveness brings to us is whether we will give someone else or we will give ourselves that opportunity. Will we be those who release others from the eternal torment of unforgiveness? Will we retain it? and somehow fuel the fires of our own self-righteousness? Will we use it to batter and beat ourselves so that we're not propelled to try and make changes that really matter in our lives and in this world? Or will forgiveness free us from that prison and allow us in some way to take that new start in God's new creation? We can all take that time and be really honest and name the secrets and the lies and the actions and the betrayals that hold us in darkness. But that darkness that we live in, that we hide in, behind locked doors, ultimately fragments our lives. It separates us from God. It separates us from other people. It separates us from ourselves. And ultimately, 
That darkness is not about our behavior, the things that we've done, the things we've left undone. They're just, those are symptoms of the darkness that we live in perpetually. Because we don't trust God enough with our whole lives. And we refuse to see ourselves and we refuse to see one another the way God sees them. That is at the heart of sin. And all of our choices flow out of that refusal, out of that rebellion. And so the darkness that we find the disciples hiding in in this house is a darkness we know as we hide from ourselves, as we deny sometimes what's really going on, as we make up those cover-up stories and we pretend that everything is really okay, we leave no room for the spirit of truth to blow through our lives, to inspire us, literally breathe into us, to recreate us. And in the end, we choose to retain our sins and live in darkness, in that state of unforgiveness. And that's not what God chooses. The fear of being found out keeps us locked in our own darkness, but God chooses something different. The only thing that can overcome the darkness of our lives that will open the doors to new life is the spirit of truth that Jesus brings. We need an advocate who will stand on our side and not leave us orphaned. Every once in a while, I have the opportunity to go to youth league games, whether it's baseball, softball, soccer, something like that. And, and I'm always tickled to death. And sometimes they get kicked out. And so, you know, sometimes it can get taken too far. But to see a coach go toe-to-toe with an official and just stand up for their player relentlessly, regardless of the outcome, to say, you called it wrong, you called it, that's just an amazing vision of advocacy. I think sometimes we see the Holy Spirit as a silent partner, but have you ever envisioned God's Holy Spirit as advocating for you before God and in this world so vigorously that the Holy Spirit will take the abuse rather than you? That's the way of Jesus. An advocate who will stand on our side not leave us orphaned, one who will teach us everything, who will remind us of all that Jesus said, who will guide us into all truth, the truth about God and the truth about ourselves. We need what the Holy Spirit brings. And so that's what Jesus does. He comes and stands in the middle of that locked house, and he stands in the middle of your locked house and breathes, breathes upon you. Acts remembers how the Holy Spirit arrived like fire and wind and divided tongues. But today we remember the Holy Spirit arriving as the very life breath of Jesus so that every man and every woman becomes a living being, as Genesis chapter 2 tells us. It's the Holy Spirit that allows us to give voice, ultimately, to the great deeds that God has given us and calls us to live in a state of forgiveness and forgiveness, to remember and to reclaim that original beauty of what God worked in us and what God sees in us when God called this world and every person in it good and looked at it all and says it was very good.
that is possible through the power of God. That, and nothing less, is what God is seeking to do in you, in this church, in this world. The risen Jesus resuscitates our lives here and now and inspires us, fills us with the Holy Spirit. And so we can recall that day in Genesis when God gathered the dust to the ground and breathed God's own life into someone else. Pentecost the Holy Spirit's arrival is an act of recreation. And it frees us to leave our darkness. It frees us to step out of the locked houses into a new world, into a new life. Nothing at all is retained against us. So you should not retain it against yourself. And you should learn what it means not to hold it against your neighbor. We've been richly blessed by a promise that God and humankind share one breath, share one life. So what are we going to do in the presence of that holy breath of God? It's happened to me in choir sometimes. It definitely happened to me in one of the songs last week where the arrangement strung together so many whole notes and tied them together I didn't even know what to do. I just tried on my own to sustain that note as long as I possibly could. And exhaled, and exhaled, and exhaled. And have you ever exhaled so long that you just feel woozy? What do you do? You breathe and receive the gift of life that's freely given. Thanks be to God for the Holy Spirit, the life breath of God, and all of creation, and a special breath for each and every one who trusts Jesus. Amen.